Hello, my name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast, and in this episode of our History 101 series, we do the Byzantine Empire. So the Byzantine Empire is actually the Eastern Roman Empire, and the idea that the Roman Empire died in 476 and ended is a myth of Western Europe. It's a, a Catholic mix uh, myth. It's a Western European superiority myth. And there will be a lot of conflict with between Western and Eastern Europe. It's still going on today. But the Byzantine Empire, what is called the Byzantine Empire, is the Greek-speaking eastern half of the Roman Empire. And it will last until 1453. Its capital at Constantinople is today Istanbul. And the Byzantines, a Roman Empire, lasted a thousand years after the fall of Rome. So the Eastern Roman Empire survives. Why? Because, mostly because of Constantinople. It was a huge trade capital. It had massive protective walls. Actually, we could see on our map of the uh, German and Gothic and Hunnic invasions, the star on the map, if you're watching the movie, is where Constantinople is located. And look, lots of arrows go to Constantinople. Of course it would. It's a great big city. But there are no arrows to the east of it. No one could get past it. So what happened is Gothic barbarians came up. They, had, they don't live in cities. They don't know how to build big walls, so they don't know how to take giant walls down. They come up to the walls, they look up, and they go, uh, what do you want to do? And they look at each other and go, Rome? Yeah, why not? And they leave. Which means your life in Egypt, in Syria, in Asia Minor, didn't change. The fall of the Roman Empire is something that happened to somebody else. Oh, that sucks. Garçon, bring me some uh, a orange smoothie, please. I'm going to take my drinks over by the pool. <sighs> I'm done with the newspaper today. Your life continued. It happened to somebody else. So if you're in Alexandria... Life is good. Life continued to be good. Sure, there's all this bad stuff happening somewhere else to some other people. You feel bad for them. But what are you going to do about it? You're in Egypt. You're going to go to work. You're going to do your job. You're going to have dinner with your family. You're going to say goodnight to your kids. You're going to make love to your spouse. And yay, you're going to live your life like you're supposed to. Meanwhile, there's death and destruction, and it's it's like an apocalyptic zombie plague going on in Gaul. But you're sunning in the sun. You're getting a nice tan. Because of the walls of Constantinople. Second, Christianity. Christianity is deeper in the East. We see this, most importantly... With the patriarchs, the five great patriarchs of the East, Coptic Christianity, Coptic Orthodox Christianity in Egypt still survives. 
in most of the other Middle East, it's it's a vast minority in Coptic, Coptic Egypt. There's still the survival of these traditions because they were deeply held unity of beliefs. It combined Romans. And it was older in the East than it was in the West because, you know, Jesus is from Judah, Palestine, what the Romans would have called Palestine, from Cana, from the Levant. So there were more Christians in the East and their traditions were older. So there was the feeling that Christian Romans are the chosen people. Christianity's dying out in the West. It's so bad in Britain. They forgot how to be Christians. That's not true in the East. And the East Orthodox Christianity remains the major form of religious belief well into the Middle Ages. It's, it's the Crusades that actually brings about the disaster for Christianity. So there's this feeling because you are God's chosen people, which Christians will take from the, from the Jews. And there's the feeling of we're Romans. So we are definitely God's chosen people. We'll recover. So there's this, this innate belief. Third, there's the cultural strength that goes back a thousand years. They're Roman. They're the inheritors of Greek and Roman knowledge. That goes back to the Athenian Golden Age in the 400s and goes back to Homer in the 800s B.C. This is an advantage versus the barbarians. The barbarians don't have these structures to pull upon. They don't have this deep well of knowledge to pull upon. Tacitus says that's an advantage. They're not... They're not weighed down by history, by other culture, by all these assumptions of the past. But also when the chips are down, there's a Roman superiority. We're smarter. We're richer. We're more advanced. We can do things they can't do, like build massive walls. And so in the East, 476 is not the end of anything. It's a humiliation. But the idea is we can reverse it. Jesus plus Roman technology will equal the Roman Empire part two. There was reason in 500 AD, which is the beginning of the Dark Ages in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, there's plenty of people who are optimists. This is the beginning. This is as bad as it's going to get. It, can, it has to get better. We have all the ingredients. We can do it. And that brings us to the Empire Strikes Back, Justinian. Justinian, his wife Theodosia, are going to start the recovery in the 500s. Justinian, historians love Justinian. You have to love, it's kind of like you something you have to do if you're a historian, if you're a military historian like I am, or if you're a classical historian, you have to love Justinian. Why? Because he's really the last Roman emperor. He's the Roman emperor after kind of they closed out the lights. He's the last one. He speaks Latin. He's a Christian. He's going to act like Constantine. He saw himself as an heir to Octavian, to Augustus. 
He reads the, the, the meditations by Marcus Aurelius. He sees himself in that light. And so what he wants is to recreate the Roman Empire as it was. And you have to respect that. He's going to be massively hardworking. In fact, there were rumors that there were ghosts, demons in the palace because the lights never turned off. The candles were always lit. No one could work that much. Well, he did. And the first thing was war. Romans do war. Roman emperors do war. And so the idea was reconquer. The reconquest of the Roman Empire. Italy, get back Rome. Get Sicily back. Get North Africa around the city of Carthage. Get eastern Spain. And he gets all those back. Leading. So Rome is again owned by Romans under Justinian. This is a good start for successors. Now remember, Rome wasn't built in a day. The Roman Empire took 500 years to create. Six, if you want to get to its largest extent. 600 years to create. One emperor isn't going to recreate the whole thing. But it's a good start. If nothing bad happens and you get good successors, the Roman Empire can, can come back, reunite Europe. And so take a look at the map. We start with the green, which is unusual, really. On, the, on any map, the Byzantine Empire is always purple because the purple is the, the land, is the color of emperors. It's the color of kings. But on this map, it's green. And his, his generals, especially his general Belisarius, which is one of the more underrated generals in history, because he's kind of the guy who does more. He's the, he's the Billy Bean. He's the money ball. He does more with less than almost any other general in history. North Africa, Sicily, Italy, Rome, and even southern and eastern Spain. Meaning, again, for in Justinian's reign, the Roman Empire again extended from the Atlantic to the Euphrates and from the Sahara to the, to the Alps. 3,000 miles across, 4,000 miles across, two to three miles up and down. Again. Two, he builds big things. Why? Because Roman emperors build big things that everyone can use. This is the Roman Republican spirit. The biggest building is going to be the Hippodrome. The horse racing, the chariots. It could hold 100,000 people. It's where Roman emperors do the public stuff. They do their announcements. They do their triumphs. They, do, they can bring 100,000 people together and do their thing. But here's the thing. Can a Roman emperor who is a Christian have gladiatorial events where people murder each other just like they did back in the day when they were like, for a time, murdering Christians. Can you do that? No. So what does Justinian build? The Hagia Sophia, the largest Christian church in the world. And it will be the largest Christian church in the world for a thousand years. The Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom. Let me see. I got a, got a picture of it. The Hagia Sophia. It's still there. It's changed. But it's still there. 
And there's a reason why it's changed. But it's not a church anymore. It's not even a museum anymore. That's just that's very recent. But the Hagia Sophia is the largest Christian church in the world for the next thousand years. It's absolutely massive. The other thing he's going to build is ports and aqueducts, water, trade. Constantinople will become the largest entrepot on the Silk Road. It is where retail is where wholesale becomes retail, which means that's where you make the most money. It's Costco. It's where wholesale becomes retail. You buy in bulk and you sell to the merchants. So you get these ports, you have a navy. Things are looking good. We have the Hagia Sophia. And then Roman emperors do the law. Rome and the law. The Corpus Juris Civilis, the Justinian Code. What Justinian does is modernize Roman law. Why? Well, for 300 years, no one looked at it. Why? Well, you had the crisis of the 3rd century, the 3rd century crisis. So you had all these civil wars. So nobody has any time to be like, well, let's take a look at the law code and see how things are going. No, you're like... Ah, I finally became emperor. And then, I ah, there's a revolution on my northern border. The Goths are invading. Ah, oh, the Germans are attacking. Ah, oh, there's a breakaway province in Gaul. Ah, oh, Persia's invading. And then there were the Huns and the Goths and the Gaul and the Goths and the Germans. So there were the invasions. And then there was the recovery and so nobody has looked at Roman law for about ugh, 300 years. So there's a lot of stuff in there that no longer applies, that doesn't work, that's inefficient. And he and his jurists go through line by line, code by code, modernizing it, taking stuff out, eliminating other things, getting rid of the fat, why does that matter? Well, because it essentially saves Roman law in a efficient form for the Crusaders. When the Crusaders come, they will take this law code back to their home countries of, in Europe and basically create modern European law. They'll take their common law and add to it, and, but the idea of judge and juries, and defense, and innocent to proven guilty, and all of those things are here. And modern European law becomes modern American law, modern Western law. And thus, when we create the UN, world law. So the way to think about the world, legally, how the legal world operates, is in part founded on Justinian, on Justinian's code. So everything looks good. Unfortunately, Justinian can't live forever. He actually was very unpopular by the end of his reign because of his taxes. Uh, but if you get good successors, they will reconquer the rest of the Roman Empire. Goal, the inner, inner, inner Spain, 
right? Western Spain and Portugal, but mostly Gaul is what's left, right? So you could do that in a hundred years, you know, two, three emperors tops. If you couldn't, you could definitely reconquer Gaul. I mean, Caesar did it in his lifetime. Spain is harder. But you could reconquer the Roman Empire. You could convert the Germanic tribes. Remember, there's Natio. So not only do you have being Roman, but you also have Christianity, which some of the Germanic tribes are becoming. So you have this, this, this unity already. You show up and you, you, you help. It gives you someone to help, right? So if different Germanic tribes are fighting each other, but one's a Christian and one's a pagan, you either go to the stronger one and say, become Christian and I will join you. Or you go to the weaker Christian one and go, we're Christians too. Join with us. Remember, Nascio allowed anyone to become a Roman. So there's no barrier. Okay, you have to become a Christian, but we can work that out. So good successors, the reconquest of the Roman Empire, the conversion of the Germanic tribes, and the success of Christianity would, will equal one united Europe, North Africa, and Middle East. One Mediterranean world going back to Alexander that will remain united and strong and wealthy as a Roman, Greek, Christian world. Is that what we got? So that's what will happen as long as nothing bad happens. So guess what happens? A series of bad things happen. In the 530s, a giant plague, a bubonic plague, comes through and kills 25% of the Byzantine urban population. Like it's kind of a forgotten plague compared to the Black Death of the Middle Ages, it's arguably that this one was more important. It, comes, it follows the Silk Road. It will kill 25% of urban populations. It ends any chance of the Byzantines reconquering Europe. It wipes out workers. It wipes out soldiers. It wiped out 25% of the population. It, in, in one plague, it wiped out any chance of recreating the Roman Empire. In the 630s, the Arabs erupt out of Arabia, fueled by Islam, and they'll conquer Middle East, North Africa, Spain. They'll conquer Spain in 711. In 717, they lay siege to Constantinople, which is the greatest city of the world. They do that to prove that they are Allah's chosen people. Remember, Roman Christians were the chosen people. And now here we are, 150 years later, and what's happening? Arabic Muslims from the deserts of nowhere are laying siege to the greatest city in the whole wide world. That's insane. If you told Justinian that's going to happen in 150 years, he'd laugh at you. He's like, no, no, no. The Arabs are nobody. The desert is nothing. But all these things happen. Constantinople is saved, though, from the Arab conquest. We'll talk about that more when we do Arabic Islam. By Greek fire, which is essentially napalm. 
It is a petroleum-based weapon that lights on fire when it hits oxygen and can and is lighter than water, so it can burn on top of water. It is napalm, essentially. And it's the last invention of Roman science. Which is apropos, because remember what the Romans do better than anybody else. War. And build roads, but mostly it's war. So it makes sense that the last invention that the Romans come up with of Roman science that goes back through the Greeks goes all the way back to the golden age of Athens. Is a weapon of war. And you've seen it. It's, it's, this is the representation. If you're watching the video, the representation, they shot it like a flamethrower out of their ships. There's the ancient Byzantine representation. There's a more modern representation of the destruction of the Arab ships underneath. Um, but if you're a Game of Thrones fan, it's the wildfire, the green wildfire. That's what saves King's Landing. That's when George R. R. Martin's writing. He's not basing it. He's not making it magic. He's simply using Greek fire. Now, in the show, it explodes rather than burns. So that's anachronistic. You know, you, you need, you need gunpowder for an explosion. You need a chemical reaction for an explosion. You know, this is, this is a flamethrower. You light it on fire and it shoots out. Um, but the effect is completely the same. It obliterates the Arab ships, devastates the Arab army. You know, this is magic. This is like dragon fire coming out of the sky. You know, what is this? How do you explain this? Because it's magic if you don't understand science. And so... And so the Arabs retreat. Constantinople is saved. But the loss of much of the empire, the almost lost of Constantinople equal to trauma. Why? Why is this happening to us? Why did we get a plague? Why did we get... Why did we lose half of our empire? Egypt's gone. Alexandria is gone. The city named for Alex. Alexandria is gone. The largest population of Christians in the world are gone. Conquered by, by Muslims. Can we get them back? How do we get them back? Jerusalem is gone. The steps where Jesus walked are gone. How? How is that possible? How did it taken over by Arabs with their weird Islamic religion, which claims to be more, more monotheist than Christians? They're claiming to love God more than people who love God. How is that possible? And so they look around for a reason, right? They know their Bible. They know their ten plagues. Why is God mad? They know their Judaism. They know their Judea. And, um, of course, you're going to go, first thing you're going to go to for why bad things happen is the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians. And go, why? And there's, God must be mad. So why is God mad? And they look around, and there it is. It's a punishment from God because of icons. 
they are breaking the second commandment. Second commandment is you shall not have any graven images. So Judaism doesn't have any representation of God or this, you know, this prophets, the saints. Christianity, on the other hand, isn't Judaism. Christianity is a Roman religion, and the Romans and the Greeks painted everything. They loved everything. They, art was a representation of the glory of the body. So instead of painting Jupiter, you painted Jesus. Okay, not a problem. And so Christian churches were covered with images. And everyone knew it was breaking the second commandment, but things were good. Well, now things are bad. And so what this ushers in is a religious conservatism where the people say, look, we got punished. We have to destroy the icons. We have to, and the icons are based upon the Roman part of the civilization. So basically what these conservatives are saying is more Christianity, more religion, more Bible, less Greek and Roman, less Plato, less Socrates, less Aristotle, less Euripides, less Tacitus, less Horace. Oh, Horace. Poor Horace. With his, his endless fart jokes. Less Virgil. More Christians. This leads to the breakup of the Christian church because the Bishop of Rome says, no, I can't do that. I can't destroy icons. Why? Because the West is poorer. Italy, Gaul, Spain. It's less Christian. These barbarians, these, these Germanic tribes aren't Christian. And here's the thing. They are not going to like peaceful Jesus. They are not going to like Jesus barefoot and nailed to a cross. They are not going to think that is a powerful God. And they just conquered the Roman Empire. So they're going to look at the Romans and they look at the Roman God, Jesus, and go, yeah, I don't think so. So he needs, the Bishop of Rome needs liberalism. To be able to change the image. So Jesus goes from being uh, blessed are the meek to what evangelicals in modern day America like of Jesus. Old Testament, fire and brimstone, kicking people's asses into hell. And if you go to the Sistine Chapel, you get both Jesuses. You get the glory of, of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Moses and Adam, and you get the glory of God. But on the wall, when you walk in on your right, 30 feet tall, is angry Jesus kicking souls into hell while they beg him, please save me. And he's like, nope, uh-uh, nope. If you want to convert barbarians, you need badass Jesus. You can't have Buddhist Jesus. You can't have, like, slap my wrist, slap my, my face, I'll turn the other cheek. No, that doesn't work. So the Bishop of Rome needs that liberalism, and so they break up. 
and it breaks Europe into a Catholic West and an Orthodox East. And those two, as time goes on, become two completely different cultures, which means there's no chance of recreating a unified Roman Empire. And we see this today. Europe is divided, even today, between an East and a West, between the Slavic and the Orthodox, and the Germanic and the, Christ and the Catholic, and the Christian. Right? Brexit happened. The British left the EU. Why? Because they let in the Poles. They let in the Czechs. They let in the Romanians and the Bulgarians. The British did, didn't care if cute French uh, students were coming to Cambridge to study, much less Scandinavians. They would love Scandinavians coming by. But when Brexit was happening, when the original vote was going on, and I was in England, it was the Polish workers, the Polish workers, the Polish workers. It was Eastern Europeans that were the problem. In other countries, it's Muslim immigrants. But in London, the anger was very much and on the, very much at the East, the Poles, the Bulgarians, the Romanians the Eastern Europeans, that they were too different. Spain? Everybody vacations in Spain. The French? Hey, we got over that. The Scandinavians? Hell yeah, we love the Scandinavians. Blonde, blue-eyed, leggy? Sure. The Poles, on the other hand? The Russians? The Russians aren't in the EU. Russians aren't in NATO. Europe is still divided in this place that was happened in the 700s. The Bishop of Rome stops being called the Bishop of Rome. He becomes the father, Papa, the supreme head of the Western Church, the Pope. And Eastern Europe and Western Europe go on their separate ways. So the Byzantines recover. They push the Arabs back into Mesopotamia in the 800s, and part of this is because the Arab Islamic armies were having civil wars between the Rashidun, the Umayyads, and the Abbasids. We'll cover that in our net in when we do um, Islam. But they, the Umayyads got crushed at Constantinople, and they went reeling back and the Byzantines recovered much of Asia Minor, pushed them back to the mountains. In the 900s, you get the greatest of the conquerors, the greatest of the Greek-speaking conquerors. No, there's, there's Justinian, then there's Heraclitus, uh, who will defeat the Persians, who's the best successor to, to, he's like the second or third guy who comes after Justinian, and then there's a long period where there isn't anybody, and then there's Basil, Basil the Bulgar Slayer. He'll turn from the east, from fighting the Muslims, to the north, fighting the Slavs, who are coming out of the Russian-Ukrainian Russian, Russian -Ukrainian, 
uh, Lithuanian forests, and he will crush them, the Russians, the Bulgarians, the Serbs, and he will stabilize northeastern, the borders in northeastern Europe on the Danube. And he gets the name Basil the Bulgar Slayer because he was very nice to Bulgarians. No, actually he wasn't. He actually defeated an army and had um, the eyes of all the soldiers torn out. So, uh, not necessarily the nicest guy, but an efficient, effective leader. <clears throat> so we have recovery in the 800s, we have success in the 900s, we have stability, we got allies, right? We can now pull on Slavs, right? We've got money, Constantinople is still the richest city in the world. We have cultural legitimacy, Greeks, Romans, Christians. We have Constantinople, the queen of cities. All we need is good successors. All we need is a, a line from Basel of good military administrative kings, of emperors. And again, maybe we can certainly recover Mesopotamia. The, the Abbasids are building some massive place in the middle of Mesopotamia. Um, ba, ba, ba. It's not Babylon. It's something with a B. And it's in the middle of Mesopotamia. There's, we can recover Jerusalem, at least Syria. It's right over the mountains. We can cover Damascus, maybe Jerusalem. And with the Navy, liberate Coptic Egypt. We could do all those things. The largest Christian population in the world is still in Egypt. Even at this late date, even in the 800s, even in the 900s, it's still in Egypt. We can liberate them. And Egyptian money plus Constantinople, Alexander plus Constantinople would be a magnificent duo. But what do we get? We get weak emperors after Basel. A series of weak emperors and selfish emperors. And Basil had no sons. He had two daughters. And they became playthings of the nobility. And it's just, it's so disappointing. And this leads to the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. While this mess of who's going to run the Byzantine Empire, who's going to control Constantinople is going on. The Turks cross the mountains. Now, who are the Turks? The Turks are tough horsemen from Central Asia. Something happened in Central Asia. It might have been caused by uh, Tang emperors. It probably was, to be honest with you. But what happened is, and this is outside of history, we literally don't have the records of it. We don't know. But Central Asia including what was Afghanistan, Bactria, the Trans-Oxus, these areas of the steppe were full of Persian speakers. Right? The Persians were a tribe of these Persian speakers who came down, conquered the Middle East. Right? Well, their, their cousins remained up in Central Asia. And so when Alexander goes to Afghanistan, he's dealing with Persian speakers for the most part. Modern Urdu is a Persian language. 
right? The Taj Mahal is a Persian building. It's not literally a Persian building. It's it's built by an Indian Muslim. But look at the architecture. It's a Persian architecture. So Central Asia had a very large population of Persian speakers. And something happened that it changed over. The language changed from Persian to Turkish. The Turkish groups who were related to the Mongols, who were related to the tribes north of China, wiped out the Persian speakers. Well, the Arabs are willing to hire them. The Arabs need mercenaries. They need um, horse troops, especially. Even though the Arabs were horsemen, they, they needed tougher horse troops. And so they hired the Turks to come in. Their stipulation was, you kind of have to be Muslim. And the Turks go, well, what does that mean? And they give them the five pillars, which we'll talk about later. And the Turks are like, yeah, okay, fine. So they're kind of Muslim. It's not real deep. It's a it's a folk. They 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 like the songs, they like the poetry, you know. But if you're like, okay, let's go through the Quran, the Turks are like the Germans in this case. They're gonna look at you and go, What? Huh? I don't yeah, no. Uh we like the battles and the destruction and the end of the world stuff. That's cool. Uh yeah, the uh the rules, yeah, we're not into that. So the Turks cross the border. Now, why do they cross the border? Part of it is that they, they the Arabs were trying to get rid of them, honestly. Um, having brought them in, they realized they can't control the Turks, and the Turks were too tough. So basically, the Turks looked at the Arabs and said, uh, we're tougher than you, we should just run the show. Kind of like the Terminator or the Matrix, right? The machines look at the people and go, why am I taking orders from you when I'm better than you? So the Turks start taking over what is what is left of the Abbasid Empire, and basically the Abbasids are like, uh, why don't you go to uh, fight the Christians at Constantinople? They're really tough. You think we're, we're tough? You think we're weak? You should fight the, the um, Christians. They're really tough. And the Turks are like, oh, really tough? How tough? Really tough? We'll beat them. I will defeat them. Where are they? On the other side of those mountains? Okay. So they cross the mountains. Now, here's a, here's a weird thing of history. This is a weird thing where geography matters. Asia Minor is like a thumb that that's spits out into the Mediterranean and the Black Seas. Right? Around the edge of that thumb are mountains. And that's where the Greeks like to live. They lived on the water. Remember when we talked about Sicily? They lie all of their cities. There are 25 cities in Ionia. They're all on the coast. And then there's large mountains. And on the other side of those mountains is like Colorado or Wyoming. More like Wyoming. Flat plateau. So it's this piece of the Asian steppe that has been thrust out by geographic accident into the Mediterranean world. What does this mean? It means when the Turks show up, they look around and go, oh my God, it's home. Oh my God, it's just like home. There's mountains and there's mountains and this is flat and it's cold in the winter and it's hot in the summer. This is great. We're staying. See, the Middle East is not good to the Turks. 
the Middle East is desert and sand. There's a couple big rivers, and it, it's nothing like the steppe back home. There's no grasslands in the in 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 the Middle East. You go too far south, you're in the Arabian desert. There's just sand, nothing. So for horsemen like the Turks, they want grassland, flat, high grasslands, endless grassland. And so when they show up in Asia Minor, they're like, oh my God, it's home. So we're staying. We're going to stay. We're going to move in. Call the fam. We're moving in. This is not a problem. You would think the Byzantines would think this is a problem, but that means you haven't been studying because it's not a problem. Why? Because the Byzantines are Romans and they have Nashio. All we have to do is show them who's boss, win a big battle, show them who has legitimacy, then hire them as troops, settle their families. All right, their families want to live on the steppe. Great. Settle them in the east. That's great. Give them Roman citizenship. Give them Byzantine citizenship. Convert them to Christianity. They're not really Muslims. They won't really be Christians, but it'll, they'll be Christian enough. And then you invade the Middle East. You march down, you burn Baghdad, you capture Damascus. Maybe, maybe you get all the way down to Jerusalem and then using your navy, you get across the Sinai, capture Alexandria, liberate Egypt, and you're back, baby. Byzantine Empire. So 10, so 1100 could be 530 all over again. All you have to do is win one big battle. And have we seen this happen before? Yes, at Adrianople. And what happens at Manzikert? It is a disaster. It is a disaster in the East. The emperor, the emperor is betrayed by his nobility in the middle of the battle. If you've ever seen Braveheart, you've seen this happen. Right? The emperor is fighting away and he turns to his nobility. He waves his flag for his nobility and on their horses to come charging in and win the battle. And they go, nope. And they leave. Basically, they said, if the emperor gets killed, one of us could be emperor. Ah. <sighs> uh... That's how bad the political situation had declined from Basil. If Basil had been in charge, if Basil the Bulgar Slayer had been in charge, he would have been called the Turk Tamer or something. He would have laughed at these guys. Tough guys. Tough horsemen. I don't want to take anything away from the Turks. But Basil and his 100,000-person army and his organization and his logistics would have marched out, fought them, crushed them, absorbed them, hired them, paid them really well, and then sent them back to the Arabs with a gift saying, uh, made in Europe. Instead, the emperor is betrayed. His, the emperor is killed in the battle. His army is destroyed. Funny, the betrayers are all killed. Because they get hunted down by the Turks. And the Turks are like, you betrayed your leader in a battle. Like, you don't get to be emperor. We're going to kill you for that. 
You're cowards. You're disloyal to your own king. Like, we don't respect you. So the Turks forget it. The Turks take over all of Asia Minor because not only did they win the big battle, they don't even respect the Byzantines after this because the Byzantines can't even be loyal to their own, the, their, their own king, their own emperor. But the Turks are horse people, nomads from Central Asia. So they just stare at Constantinople. They look at Constantinople and go, it's across the, this water. It's across um, the inlet to the Black Sea. It's in the Sea of Marmara. And they're looking at it going, I can't take that. What are we going to do with this? So, But they take over Asia Minor. And what happens is this conversion. Because now the emperor is dead, there's going to be a brief civil war to find out who the new emperor will be. So that's a couple of years. Um, so that means no one is coming to help them. So if you're in Asia Minor, if you're a Greek Christian in Asia Minor, you could either leave or be oppressed by the Turks. The Turks are happy if you leave because that means now your land is their land. Great. Thank you. Your property is their property. If you stay, they're just going to oppress you, make you pay lots of taxes, never make you a citizen, take away all your rights. Like you would do if you conquered foreign peoples. So, because the Turks don't have Nashio. The Arabs have Nashio, but the Turks don't. Turks look at the Greeks and say, you lost. Tough noogies. So what happens is the Greeks begin to leave. They leave, especially the eastern part, especially where, well, what is Armenia and all that? They begin to pull out so that you have enclaves you know, like Armenia, that's left. But the great demographic move is back to Europe. They leave. And so the Turks move in and replace them. And so Asia Minor changes. It goes from being Greek and European and urban and Christian to being Turkish, Asiatic, rural, and Islamic. It is a transformation of a thousand years of demography. The cultural, cultural legacy of Alexander and the Romans is over. Going back to the Trojan War, it's over. Asia Minor is not Asia Minor anymore. It's Turkey, the land of the Turks. It, you have a complete demographic change. So that brings us to the end. The Byzantines are, for me, one of the great sad chapters to do. There's lots of sad stuff to do, but for me, the Byzantines are always on the edge of getting it right. They're always so close. If they had a, if the Basil had been commander at Manzikert, they'd probably win. If the plague, if this devastating plague doesn't come through maybe they get back to Roman Empire it's, it's a series of what ifs and now the Byzantines are gone they're gone modern Greeks aren't the Byzantines these Roman uh, Orthodox peoples they're gone they don't exist the closest might be the Copts, the Coptic peoples of Egypt who still survive. And they're all oppressed exactly what the Greeks 
in Asia Minor were fleeing is exactly what happened to the Coptic peoples of, of Egypt. They got oppressed. People converted to become citizens of, of Islamic Egypt. But that meant giving up your culture, giving up your religion, giving up your past. Becoming an Arab. You could, because the Arabs had Nashio. But you gave up a lot to do it. And so there are still a minority of people in Egypt who have a who continue this culture. And they might be the closest. I don't I don't know. I haven't done enough reading about what's left of the Byzantines. It's just sad. To me, it's just sad. It's a great what if that Europe doesn't have to look the way it could have been united. That you didn't have to have the separation of Europe and Africa in the Middle East. That these cultures could have could have instead of being warring against each other, we could have worked together all this time. And so the Byzantines to me are kind of the great what if. Talk to you soon.